Okay. Uh, remember the opening question. How many of you were here two, two times ago? Okay. So um, he starts off with a proportion. And he says that <coughs> Christianity, man is to nature as Christianity is to all other religions. Okay? Um, and so that was our opening question, whether or not he makes his case for that proportion. And remember, I even read part of his conclusion where he says, I'm not sure I've made my case. Right? But then he, he goes ahead and, uh, and tells us why he has made his case. Um, so I think what we should start with is um, uh, on, let's see, it's in, uh, it's in the, uh, the Escape from Paganism. Okay? And I want to start here because we, we talked about this. We talked about mythology. We had a good little talk about mythology first off. But it's in one of the uh, opening... Well, it's, no, it's probably right smack in the middle. But it's the first couple of lines of one of the paragraphs. And he says this. He says... What that universal yet fighting faith brought into the world was hope. Perhaps the one thing common to mythology and philosophy was that both were really sad. That is a provocative statement. Um, especially if you've been raised by Jesuits or educated by Jesuits or had any association with Thomas Price <coughs> College or uh, any of the other Catholic, it's an interesting statement, right? Because Catholic universities, since the Middle Ages, right, um, have privileged philosophy, right? Philosophy is the royal road to theology. So why does Chesterton make this statement, and is it true? Is it true? Before we go any further, is there any way you could help us find that? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's page 240 on that book. No, not that. This book. Let's see. Okay. I'll count paragraphs. Thirteen. We got it? Perhaps the one thing, what that universal yet fighting faith brought into the world was hope. Perhaps the one thing common to mythology and philosophy was that both were really sad. I was thunderstruck when I read that sentence. First of all, two things. He lumps mythology and philosophy together. Is that something we ought to do? Um, and second of all, he says that neither one gave hope. I always thought that mythology was a um, combination of the ideal and real together in one form of expression, and that it wasn't a bad thing. I, I didn't agree with this sentence. I didn't think he understood mythology enough to give it its prime due. One more time, you said you always thought that mythology was... A combination of the real and the ideal, and a beautiful expression of that, too. So that you had, you know, things like the vertical and the horizontal together, and, you know, and mm -hmm. discussed it. Okay. I'll read from him, I would say. Um, at the very end of the, the page, the same uh, chapter we are on, the the second to the last paragraph, it says the two sides of the human mind could never have touched at all. The brain of man would have remained cloven and double, one lobe of it dreaming impossible dreams and the other repeating invariable calculations. Just that it's a synthesis of, um, you know, the dreams and the reality of the two coming together. 
Okay, now that's interesting because that comment, you're, you're then, you're, his dichotomy you're accepting, right? That the one is the dreams, the other is the reality. Whereas you, is it? Yeah, Marsha. Marsha said that actually, no, you thought that in mythology both were, were, were together. Sort of by starting your, your description by saying this would be the Jesuits, Jesuits boss, you're, you're sort of skipping ahead of 1,500 years or so. He's, he's talking about pre-Christian philosophy, pre-Thomas Aquinas, pre the baptism of Aristotle, and that neither through mythology nor philosophy did man achieve salvation. He says somewhere in here, where does he talk about Socrates and Jesus together? He says at some point that the death of Socrates was utterly unlike the death of Jesus. Yeah, okay, so 339 in this book and what page in the other book? Let's see, how far are we into this chapter here? I think it's seven, seven from the front. He says, no two things could possibly be more different than the death of Socrates and the death of Christ. Okay? We are meant to feel that the death of Socrates was, from the point of view of his friends at least, a stupid muddle and miscarriage of justice, interfering with the flow of a humane and lucid, I had almost said, a light philosophy. We are meant to feel that death was the bride of Christ as poverty was the bride of St. Francis. Now, interestingly, though, we have, I remember our proportion. Again, we have man is to nature as Christianity is to all other religions. So where do philosophy and mythology fit in relative to religion? I, my name is Marla. Um, philosophy and and mythology are grappling with, on different levels, what is, what is the real, in a sense? I mean, how do we tell the story of, of humanity? And religion is, is re I always think of it as being revealed truth from God. Jamie, um, I, I think I remember that he was saying that um, mythology and philosophy are each kind of dealing with half of the question, and religion was maybe dealing with both sides, the storytelling side from mythology and the search for truth side from philosophy. And that Christianity, at least, was, was dealing with both. It told a story that was true, and it was about truth. I'm still not sure how philosophy got into this discussion, though, because remember that the, the opening, an opening proportion, right, talking man to nature, as Christianity to all religions, right? And so, uh, according to that dichotomy, what what would he say? What would Lewis? I mean, what would Chesterton say that uh, ancient religions were? He wouldn't say they were philosophy. Would he? He'd say they were mythology. Right? Ancient religions. He distinguishes those from post from religions that came after the coming of Christianity, right? So he calls, he would say all those are conditioned by Christianity, right? Those would be... Understand, and, uh, he kind of concludes it in, in his conclusions where he says, uh, 
he talks about man kind of going out and trying to understand the universe, and he says he breaks the people into a couple different groups. There was a group that the majority um, fell in with the myth and the uh, following that, even if they didn't really quite believe it. Then there was the group that were the sages and the thinkers who did try to answer the question about what's the meaning of the universe through philosophy. And so he kind of groups all of those seekers kind of together in, in that way, and then he goes on to describe how some deviate down to you know, the, the cults and the, okay. the things that are being worship, basically. Mm -hmm. So that's two. You and, and Jenny laid out the same, right? The, the argument that basically he's, that answers the question I just posed, right? How did philosophy get into this? In, in, the, in Chesterton's universe, and two people have articulated it very well now, these are the imperfect, the incomplete, right? And that Christianity is the completion, right? So, in some sense, then, philosophy can only go so far. This is his argument, right? But it's still, it's still, it's still mighty puzzling um, from, a, from, from this standpoint. Here's why, here's why I wanna, would like us to chew on this bone for a bit. He set out in the beginning of the book his plan to argue on the basis of relation. Right? A proportion is a relation. It's a relation. That's why it's, it's mathematical. Right? It's, it's, it's a relation. It's not necessarily an equation, right? Although he equated the two, the two proportions, right? As this is to this, this is to this, right? So, um, and he's got now, it seems that, I mean, I'm not saying he's off track, but certainly it's a different way of looking at this, right? Because he's talking about, well, here you have two branches, neither of which grows into a full tree, right? But then, somehow, there's this full tree, right? Now, you said that Christianity, you know, Marla, right? You, you were talking about uh, Revelation, right? So yeah. you're talking about Revelation, right? As if this, the, the tree is completed sort of from on high, right? Um, and doesn't, this, I think that would be the image, right? That the tree would be, yeah. doesn't come out of the ground, right? comes out of something different. Is that a fair statement? I'm not, I'm, I don't want to put words in Chesterton's mouth. I mean, I want to try, let's really try to understand his argument. Um, because I think there's as much implicit in this argument as there is explicit. Right? And the argument depends a great deal on what's implicit. Right? But let's get the explicit out of the table. So, in his view of Christianity, right, how does he present Christianity. It's very important. Where does Christianity come from? The incarnation. The incarnation. Where is that? Let's look at that. Let's look at that text. Okay. Look at the God in the cave. Yes. Right around 15. So as to not bore anyone, um, some of these concepts are really difficult to grasp. Um, but he's talking about the three wise men and the magi. And why did they seek Jesus. Why were they interested in that star? Why did they seek the king? And it says here that here's the important point that the magi who stand for mysticism and philosophy are truly conceived as seeking something new and even as finding something unexpected. That tense sense of crisis which still tingles in the Christmas story and even in every Christmas celebration accentuates the idea of search and a discovery. 
which is gentleman over here mentioned the search. For the other mystical figures in in wait, for the other mystical figures in the miracle play, for the angel and the mother, the shepherds and the soldiers of Herod, there may be aspects both simpler and more supernatural, more elemental or more emotional. And here's the clincher. He says, but the wise men must be seeking wisdom. And I don't know that philosophy and mythology really gave them wisdom. For, for them, there must be a light also in the intellect. And this is the light that the Catholic, with a capital C, that the Catholic creed is Catholic with a little c, meaning universal, that the Catholic creed is Catholic and that nothing else is Catholic or universal. And he says, the philosophy of the church, capital C, is universal. And here's where the philosophy and mythology distinction comes in. The philosophy of the philosophers was not universal. Had Plato and Pythagoras and Aristotle stood for an instant in the light that came out of that little cave, they would have known that their own light was not universal. It is far from certain, indeed, that they did not know it already. Philosophy also, like mythology, had very much the air of a search. Again, reiterating what that gentleman said over there. It is the realization of this truth that gives its traditional majesty and mystery to the figures of the three kings. The discovery that religion is broader than philosophy and that this is the broadest of religions contained in this narrow space, meaning the cave. It says, for the paradox of that little group, meaning Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and I guess the shepherds, for it is the paradox of that group in the cave that while our emotions about it are of childish, simplic childish simplicity, our thoughts about it can branch with a never-ending complexity, but I guess never-ending means infinite, and mythology and philosophy isn't infinite, they become stagnant at some point. And we can never reach the end even of our own ideas about the child who was the father and the mother who was a child. I mean, I guess Chesterton is saying this is such a unprecedented concept into the mind of a mortal man that you could go forever just contemplating God becoming incarnate and helpless and homeless inside a child, mother, who, who had no royalty, who had no education in that culture, who who had no real standing, and how could God penetrate humanity? Why? And then, he, the, okay, God, let me skip forward. Here's, here's the other clincher. He talks about the three things that make this, that make Christianity so significant. And I hope I can find it here. But the third thing he talks about is Satan. And he said, the other philosophies and mythologies didn't reckon with the enemy. And his proof, and I'm paraphrasing, I wish I could find it, his proof is that there was never ever a time in history where Satan, the dragon, unleashed his fury and tried to extinguish a, I guess, a religious figure. But um, I'd, 
like to read it to you because he says it very succinctly. And, and believe me, Chesterton is not succinct. <laughs> well, well, I'll come right back here. I'll find mind. this same thing. She has a wonderful commentary on, on her reading. Might it be, we might well be content to say that mythology had come with the shepherds and philosophy with the philosophers and that only it only remained for them to combine in the recognition of religion. But there was a third element that must not be ignored, and which one, and one which that religion forever refuses to ignore, in any revel or reconciliation. Is that what you're looking for? Yep, that's it. The enemy. There was present in the primary scenes of the drama that enemy that had rotted the legends with lust and frozen the theories into atheism but which answered the direct challenge with something of that more direct method, which we may have seen in the conscious cult of the demons. In the description of that demon worship of the devouring detestation of innocence shown in the works of its witchcraft and in the most inhumane, inhuman of its human sacrifice, I have said less of its indirect and secret penetration of the saner paganism, the soaking of mythological imagination with sex, the rise of imperial pride into insanity, but both the indirect and the direct influence make themselves felt in the drama of Bethlehem, a ruler under the Roman suzerainty, probably equipped and surrounded with the Roman ornament and order though himself of Eastern blood, seems in that hour to have felt stirring within him the spirit of strange things. We all know the story of how Herod, alarmed at some rumor of a mysterious rival, remembered the wild gesture of the capricious despots of Asia and ordered a massacre of suspects of the, next, of the new generation of the populace. Everyone knows the story, but not everyone has perhaps noted its place in the story of the strange religions of men. Not everyone has seen the significance even of its very contrast with the Corinthian columns and the Roman pavement of that conquered and superficially civilized world. Only as the purpose in his dark spirit began to show and shine in the eyes of the Edenian, a seer might perhaps have seen something like a great gray ghost that looked over his shoulders, have seen him behind filling the dome of night and hovering for the last time over history. That vast and fearful face that was Moloch of the Carthaginians awaiting his last tribute from a ruler of the races of Shem. The demons also in that first festival of Christmas feasted after their own fashion. The next sentence is it's the clincher. Unless we understand the presence of that enemy, we shall not only miss the point of Christianity, but even miss the point of Christmas. And might I say, there are many Catholics today, and I can say this, I'm over 50, that I have witnessed and I've talked to, and many Christians of the Protestant faith who deny the existence of Satan. And there might even be people in this room. So it's very difficult to 
talk about Jesus coming to rescue us. It's very difficult to talk about a savior if you don't need saving, if you don't need rescuing. And rescuing from whom? And I think, Chesterton, there is this tension in this book. And it's, it's funny because there's several layers of tension. And one of them is between Chesterton and H.G. Wells. And I'm almost thinking that he, he's, he's not saying it, but he insinuates it, that H.G. Wells is demonic or Satan playing the role. And then that's why he talks about evolutionists versus the creationists. That's why he, he looks at the hypocrisy of people looking at cavemen and thinking that they were stupid when they could have been very intelligent. And that's why he makes the, um, the reference to Jesus being born in a cave. Jesus was a caveman. But anyway, the whole issue of why, why would God want to come down here? And why is philosophy sad? Why is mythology sad? It is sad because there is no hope. There is no answer. And Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus coming here purchased us from Satan. Amen. So, um, Jesus is coming here. What how are we going to categorize that? How does Chesterton categorize that? Is it philosophy? I'm thinking of a class where I was teaching at, at this is back when I was at Thomas Aquinas College, which is exactly where this, this sort of thing would happen, but we were discussing uh, the resurrection. And um, from a certain standpoint, right, from the standpoint of Aristotelian logic and philosophy, uh, only that which is uh, eternal only that which is eternal um, can be real. Okay, so that the uh, the historically conditioned uh, anything that is historical, period, right, is going to have to a certain extent some some sort of unreality, right? And so from that from that extreme standpoint of privileging philosophy, right, say truth, right, truth to be truth has to be eternal. Truth cannot be contingent. Well, historical, something that's historical is by definition contingent, right? So we're, 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 reading the, uh, we're reading Augustine and talking about the resurrection, and I ask my students, so what was the resurrection? And to a person, um, these lovely sophomores all said, philosophy. The resurrection was philosophy. Uh, exactly. Quizzical, a quizzical, a quizzical thing to say. Um, uh, but if you're taking that standpoint, and if you think, well, it can't be true, right? It can't really be true in the strict sense, right? Uh, well, okay. So let's just say, let's all admit, it wasn't philosophy, right? The incarnation, the resurrection. These are historical events, right? Christianity is a historical religion. Chesterton says as much. Uh, we all know as much. Um, how do we distinguish it, though, from mythology? Like Peter asked before the class, right? He wanted to talk about, listen, how can we, how can we make the case that Christianity is different from every other religion? Okay? And in particular, I'm thinking, some of you probably read, uh, probably read regularly the uh, 
the, the books Ignatius Press puts out by, uh, by Pope Benedict XVI, right? So, interestingly enough, in, in his book on Jesus, Nazareth, right, he quotes uh, at some length um, a distinguished rabbi, right, a book by a distinguished rabbi, who can say, the reason he quotes him is because the rabbi takes seriously the claims of Christianity. But this rabbi rejects the claims of Christianity. Right? He rejects the claim that Jesus is God on what ground? Well, he rejects it on the ground that this is too particular. It's not universal enough. Right? It, well, this is how he would, this rabbi presumably would put this into the, into the basket with myth. Right? He would say, the passage you read where it says Christianity is Catholic. This is Catholic. It's the first thing that's Catholic with a small c, universal c, right? Well, this is precisely the ground that this presumably intellectually and morally honest rabbi rejects it, right? So how do we distinguish, or how does Chesterton, really, we want to stick with what Chesterton thinks. Why does Chesterton, why, does, why is he so confidently distinguished the birth of Christ. And admittedly, the folks who pointed us in this direction, this is the key to his argument. There's no doubt about it. In fact, it seems to me we should also look, um, uh, uh, Mr. Hudson over here was pointing out before the class that early in this second book, right after he talks about the birth of Jesus, Chesterton himself comes back to that proportion. Where is that? First paragraph of chapter 2. Okay, let's read that. Let's read that together. First, chapter of First paragraph of the, the second. Of the, gospel. the riddles of the gospel. Would you mind reading for us the Delaware Park here? To understand the nature of this chapter, it is necessary to recur to the nature of this book. The argument which is meant to be the backbone of the book is of the kind called the reductio ad absurdum. They suggest that the results of assuming the rationalist thesis are more rational than ours, but to prove it, we must assume that thesis. Thus, in the first section, I often treated man as merely an animal, to show that the effect was more impossible than if he were treated as an angel. In the sense in which it was necessary to treat man merely as an animal, it is necessary to treat Christ merely as a man. Now, that's a crucial argument. And for those of you uh, who are mathematicians, or anyone who's done Euclid, or any other ancient mathematics, uh, the reductio ad absurdum, right, uh, is is a mathematical proof, right? So you you assume that which is impossible, right, and then you go ahead and you do your proof, and you see very clearly that it can't possibly work. Therefore, uh, it's a negative proof. Okay, it's a negative proof. Um, it's not a positive proof. It's a negative proof. But it's very much, again. Chesterton comes back right after talking about the birth of Jesus, right? He comes back to where he started. How am I going to argue? I'm talking about proportions. The backbone argument is this reductio uh, ad absurdum, right? And so the sentence you just read, it is necessary to treat Christ merely as a man. So let me ask you all this. Where in our opening proportion does this fit? Which one? Remember, we have two. Okay, man is to nature? Okay. Man is to nature. What's that? Uh, sorry, well, it had both of them in that same sentence, right? It had both halves. Yeah. Both halves there. It treats both. Right. Both. That's right. 
It is, isn't it? He doesn't tell us that, but it's true. Um, it is. Clearly, it's man is the nature, right? Because here's a man born in a cave, right? I, I may be way off on this, but it seems to me, having not really read the whole book, but snips and snaps here, that in that proportion, it's the son of man, capital S, is to creation as the son of God is to religion. She made the point, right? Because Christianity is to all other religions, what, what is it that's going to distinguish Christianity from all other religions? Christ, right? Christ. Now, it, it recalls to mind, I was telling, telling uh, Matthew that you, you went, I have four young children, and they ask precocious questions. Right? You, you never know what category the questions are going to come in. But one day, uh, I think it was my second youngest, Peter, he, he just blurts out, and we're driving up to Winchester from Fort Royal, he says, Dad, he says, yeah, we're Catholics, right? He says, what? Why? How do we know? How do we know that Catholicism is better than Islam? Or that Catholicism is better than Judaism? Or how, how do we know we're right? I mean, there's Buddhism, there's Hinduism, so all the kids start popping up. There's all kinds of religions being named in the car. I didn't even know they knew about these religions. We don't have a TV. I don't know where they found out about this stuff. Um, so we're driving along, and I thought about it for a second. I said, well, I said, I suppose the simplest way to put it is that the founder of our religion is still alive. And the founders of all those religions are dead. And Peter says, you know, Dad, it's a pretty good argument. He says, well, I didn't make it up. <laughs> it's not my argument. But Chesterton is making that argument, isn't he? How old is Peter? He's eight. You got trouble coming. <laughs> but, 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 Chesterton here, he doesn't headline it. It's really quite interesting. He almost slips it in, right? So remember we're talking about at the beginning, okay, he's got this proportion, and then he starts talking for a long time about mythology and all the good in mythology, but then it's imperfect, right? He talks about philosophy. It seems to me that if you're Aristotle or you're Plato, you might think, Right? That an impersonal God who's the first cause of all causes is maybe, you might think that, right? From your, from your standpoint in ancient Athens, you might think that's more universal, right? In answer to your thing, it wasn't St. Thomas yet, right? Certainly St. Thomas was able to take that. St. Augustine took the Neoplatonic tradition and took the good out of that, and St. Thomas took the Aristotelian and the Neoplatonic tradition, right? But just imagine yourself sitting in Athens and you're, you know, St. Paul is talking to the Athenians, right? And the Athenians, they have these two traditions. On the one hand, they have this sort of beautifully, but beautiful, but dark tradition, right? In the literature, and the history, and the, and, the, uh, uh, and, uh, and the poetry. On the other hand, they have this philosophical tradition, right? Which is above the fray, as it were, right? Whatever you're going to say about Christianity, it didn't start above the fray. You know, Chesterton himself, it's a key thesis of the book, right? It starts underground. Right? Remember we were talking about revelation? Right? This is why I asked. Because if you think about these things in really physical terms, right? you've got mythology that comes right out of the ground. Just like humans. Just like Adam and Eve. Right? 
Well, philosophy, right, in a way, um, does it come right out of the ground? Or maybe, or for Chesterton, maybe it's not tied to the ground enough. Right? It's incomplete in that sense. Maybe that's where philosophy falls short. Right? Because the God of Aristotle, that he gets to in the last sentence of his, the physics, right? what kind of God is it? It's not the Christian God. Right? It is God. There's no question about it. It's God. Um, but it's not God that is personally interested in human affairs. Right? It's a God, it's a remote God of causes, right? Totally and completely above the fray. And of course, all the versions of God in, in ancient philosophy, right? They, they, tend, they would influence the earth, depending on which school you're talking about, through multiple intermediaries, right? But for Chesterton, right, he makes the point here, it's a cave, right? It's not the stable, right? Well, it's a stable. But it's also a cave, right? This is underground, right? So Chesterton... You read this book and you realize this is a man that had both, look at that guy. He had both, he's got a cigar in his hand. He had both feet firmly planted on terra firma, right? He loves mythology, right? He clearly loves philosophy too. But philosophy didn't quite reach down far enough, right? Mythology didn't quite reach high enough. And so he's got Christ. Well, here's, my, here's the toughest question I have for you in the three the three sessions. Are we still in the world of relation? Is this an argument founded on relation? On relation or religion? Relation. Relation. I don't understand the question. Well, here's the question. He says, if I say to you, I'm going to make an argument, I'm going to make a mathematical argument, I'm going to say it's A is to B, C is to D. Right? That's a proportion. That's what, those are relations, right? And we've, already, we've gotten to the point where we realize, oh, wait a minute, he just pulled a fast one over us because he starts the second book. God's born in a cave, right? It's a, it's a little baby, the, the beautiful passage you read, right? You guys are right on top of the argument. But then, as Mr. Hudson over here pointed out, he comes right back to mathematics in the, in the opening paragraph of the next chapter as if to say, oh, wait a minute, Let's, let's come back to my opening. Let's come back to my, the crux of my argument. It's the crux of my argument. So that's what I'm asking. I want to know what kind of argument Chesterton really makes here. Because right? we can say, yeah, he makes his point. Right? Christianity is different from any other religion. Right? As man is different from nature. But how does he make that case? Remember, that was my question. Does he make the case... Through, this, through these relations, by, throwing a, by showing a proportion. The first part of the book, it's really neat, man is to nature. Second part, right, or Christ, Christianity is to religion, right? So are we still in the world of relation? Or is there a different argument floating, floating? You, you could argue that he made the argument of the proportion because he added Christ to both sides of the equation, right? Um, Christ was man. And Christ was the founder of the religion, and, and that preserves the mathematical aspect of it. Um, it does, no doubt about it. How does that? How does that make the argument? I'm not entirely sure that it does. I just. <laughs>
We've only got a few minutes. Um, so we have to, I kind of have to push us along here, but. I was going to say, he, he makes the, the argument as a, as a construct and, and a logic that everybody's used to. And, and I'm not sure who, who his audience is, if he's trying to talk to people who already believe or not, but he, I think that's probably the case. But he also, at the end of the book, he talks about, and it's, I think this answers your question, and that the, the truth of this is with Catholics that it's the message that matters. And that, I couldn't have paid you for this. And that, uh, and that we don't even care what the message is, almost. We're, we're carrying that forward. And so that effectively the truth of, of Jesus and Christianity is overridden that mathematics. But it's built up to that. Okay. Some other people had some comments, and then I'll talk to Carol. Well, I think his, Warren Carroll, I think his basic argument is that mythology tells us stories where people have dreamed or imagined about what's, what's real, what's true, and when Christ comes, he is the truth, and he comes into history. And, and I want to say one other thing. We were talking earlier about people denying the existence of the devil. But I want to point out that not everybody does that anymore. They did it through most of the 20th century. In the 2008 issue of Social Science Review, they have a, a review of a book by a French historian named Besançon, who said that, uh, was writing about why were there so many horrors in the 20th century. He said, possibly because the devil was very active at that time. He said that, and, and when I was writing history earlier, nobody would have been allowed to say that. Now they did. <laughs> okay, good. But you have two, 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 two emphatically correct. Anybody else? Did anybody else want to say something? Okay. I have a question. So far I haven't finished the book, but did Chesterton ever talk about um, the Holy Spirit and Revelation and about grace? I mean, that's oh. kind of... Well, here, this is a good question. In fact, that's another leading... Here we go. So... Let's see if I can find the text, since this will be a good way to, to follow up on those two comments. Uh, someplace, help me out here, it's where he talks about um, the good news. He actually uses the word uh, uh, gospel. Anyone remember where that is? Here it is. It's in the conclusion. Okay? And it comes back to the statement you made, sir. Write about the messengers. This is uh, in the um, fourth to last paragraph of the book. Okay, it's at the end of the fourth, fourth to last paragraph, and he says it is what the gods are supposed to be. What the priests are commissioned to say is not a sensational secret like what those running messengers of the gospel had to say. Nobody else except those messengers has any gospel. Nobody else has any good news. For the simple reason that nobody else has any news. Now that, I, this is, it fits in so well with what Dr. Carroll just said and what this gentleman said, because what, what does that Greek word mean, Evangelion? Anyone know? I know Mr. Carnazzo knows. Anyone knows? Anyone know what it means? Which word is it? Uh, the gospel. 
It's translated. What does it mean? Yeah, that's right. It, it was a it was a regal uh, proclamation of law, right? The decree. It didn't have. To, it didn't mean it was good. It didn't mean it was bad. It could mean okay, I decree that everybody's going to eat cheesecake. It could be I decree that nobody can eat cheesecake, right? It's just simply royal will published, right? Well, that is really interesting if you think about that. That what is the gospel, right? It's a publication of the royal will. My goodness gracious. What a spectacular royal will. How strange. Come to me, for I am meek and humble of heart. That doesn't sound like any other rescript that there's ever been written. Not even close. And this God is born in a cave, right? And what Dr. Carroll said, I think, I think Chesterton starts off rhetorically, right? Arguing dialectically. But in the end, he basically, as he admits in that argument, his, the basis for saying that Christianity is different from any other religion, right? It's, it's true. It comes right down to it. Chesterton himself has to say, well, he's God. And, and he, look at the, he, can't, he, he can't give a philosophical proof for that, as my students at TAC knew, who tried to say, the resurrection and the incarnation are philosophy. You can't do it. It's history. What are you going to do with history? Well, Dr. Carroll knows, right? You, you, you have, you show that this thing has died so many times, and you can't kill it because it's living, right? He says, heaven and earth, right, will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And you can see it as clear as day, right? You can see it as clear as day. And so, ultimately, you can look at the book and you can argue about whether he succeeds about the detail. When I, I don't know about you guys, but when I read Chesterton and my wife and I were talking about this, you know, it's a beautiful thing. If only we could all be educated like he was educated, like those guys were educated. But he has this tremendous general knowledge, right? For example, like he'll talk maybe about, he'll talk about the Renaissance, right? And his understanding of the Renaissance in relationship to the Middle Ages, maybe that's changed because of historical scholarship, but thing is, even if he gets some details wrong, right, he gets the argument right. And he gets the argument right because at the end, just what he says, he says, look, I'm not going to quibble over the details. I'm going to tell the story in its broad outlines, right? He says, man is to the other creatures like a god, right? And then he says, yeah, just like the gods of Mount Olympus, right? Good and bad, right? They're, they're, they're just completely different, right? They may be doing bad things, they may be doing good things, but the fact that they're talking and arguing and, and comparing themselves to the other animals makes them totally different. It says, how do we know Christ is different from all the other founders of all the other religions? He's still alive. He's the head of the church, right? The church keeps making all these incredible comebacks. And so, uh, I, I, I actually think I think, I think we got it. We could argue, you know, I would have loved to have sat around the table and for two hours hammered out why Chesterton put mythology and history together. 
I think we would have had a really interesting conversation because right off the bat, did you notice the comments? Marsha, right? Is it Marsha? Marsha said that the, that the that myth combines the real and the ideal, right? And then some others said, well, well, I think I think what Chesterton said is true. One combines the unreal, right? And one tries to get the real. Well, that's fascinating, and it's really important for Christianity because philosophy is the handmaid of theology, right? So we could have had a good conversation on that. But basically, it seems to me, we understand the book, right? We, we put our hands right on the important passages right from the beginning, right? And, and uh, uh, even though a lot of you haven't read the whole book, right, uh, it's really enjoyable to read. Uh, is, uh, you can't read it fast. That's the problem, right? You cannot read this book fast. Anytime I try to read it fast, I find myself chastising myself and going back and, you know, getting, pouring myself a half a glass of wine and sort of go back and read this really slowly and try to work through this. But his argument, right, his argument works because of Christ and the vitality, the ongoing, irrepressible vitality of the truth. Diane, and I would go back to the question that I've struggled with throughout the book, and that is still what role does faith play? Because if you are, and I think Stan alluded to this a moment ago as well, if you are a non-believer, if you are a believer, everything that we've read and everything we've talked about makes perfect sense. Pretend for a moment that one is an agnostic or an atheist or an adherent to another religion firmly believes in that. Is there enough in what Chesterton has written to dissuade one from non-belief to belief as we see the truth? I have, a, I have a passage here to read to you from the conclusion. All that is condemned in Catholic tradition, authority and dogmatism and refusal to retract and modify are but the natural human attributes of a man with a message related to a fact. That's how we know it's a fact. <laughs> I, I think that that's a good, that's one of the arguments he uses, though. Well, if you're a non-believer, do you take it back as we see it as fact? That's, that's the struggle I have. I mean, the probable answer to that is that some non-believers, C.S. Lewis, very impressed by the book, and it does lead them to believe. Other people with different blindnesses not convinced, but Chesterton makes in part what is really a, a secular argument by saying this man, God, has changed history. The world you live in would not be the world you live in if he had not come. All of Western civilization springs out in that cave. And if you can't see that, if you deny it, you're blind. If you do see that, ask yourself why. Well, interestingly enough, right, because Western, there's a couple of things. Again, he talks about final cause in there, right? Talks about people acknowledging final cause. Does everyone know what I mean by final cause? That everything has an end. Everything in nature has an end, right? So, and he says at the time when he was writing this, most learned people agreed. Today, virtually everybody would deny that, right? But it's interesting what Dr. Carroll said, right? Here's this French historian explaining the trauma of the 20th century, right, Bezos? Yeah. And, 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 and explaining it in terms of a spirit, an evil spirit, right? Whereas this, the, the materialist, Dr. Carroll knows as well as anybody, the, the, the assumptions 
of Enlightenment historiography. Plus, the, you know, there is no such thing as, as non-material being, right? So uh, uh, that is a great question. I'm sorry we didn't pay much. Do you, do you want me to answer it for you? Please. That's not what we're supposed to do here, right? I mean, the, uh, but well, carrying his, you know, the, the title of the book, the premise of the book, all, everything that we progressed to, and uh, I, I guess I kept tripping over the fact that if you're a believer, this is just reinforcing what you already believe. But if you're a non-believer, is Chesterton's argument is everything he laid out enough? Well, here, here, okay, here, I'll actually, I'll lay one, my one card on the table. This is what I would think that is the lasting argument that he makes in this book. Right? Because I was fascinated. I'm a medieval historian. I work on the history of the university. I, you know, I'm writing a book on the first 50 years of the University of Paris. And so he talks about feudalism disappeared. Right? Feudalism is gone. Right? It was gone early. But what if you talk about the Middle Ages? What are the two institutions that come out of the West? The enduring, right? Well, you have to talk about the university, right? Isn't that the other one? The university? Right? Well, who knows whether the university as it now is configured is going to endure, right? Back then it was more efficient for everybody to go to Paris. You know, technologies can change. But let's suppose the university disappears, right? Look, Herodotus in his histories long ago said no institution is forever. There's no institution that lasts forever. They're all doomed to rise and fall, right? And this from one of the earliest great writings ever. Chesterton's argument? To non-believers, there's one. Yes. Today, Today. Right. and uh, but it's a, it's a story longer, right? Well, it, you know, you, 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 you put it this way. You see my problem. It, well, but here, but see, I think that in this sense, and this is a great question because the type of argument he's making, right? It is not a Euclidean proof. It's not. It's not mathematical. It can't be, right? Um, and he 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 makes the analogy. To the, to the mathematical um, uh, reduction to the impossible, right? But it can't get there. It just can't. But it's a good analogy, right? And if you think about experience, you think about all record, right? It's a good argument. Why is the church, how is it possible that the Catholic Church still springs up buds all over the What is, you know, you look at it, either Herodotus is right or he's wrong. He's right about everything else. He's wrong about this, but it's not quod erat demonstrandum, right? It's not that, but it's still a great art. I think we're done. Oh, one more. I think one of the aspects of Chesterton that I felt was missing in our series is his incredible sense of humor. And, you know, he is delightful. He makes you laugh. And he reminds me of St. Teresa of Avila who said, Lord, save me from gloomy saints. You know, we need to be light and joyful and full of fun. I mean, he's probably in heaven just smiling down on our little conference and laughing. We're so intense and we're so analytical and we just don't see the spoof and the fun and everything that he's so great at putting in his writing. Mea maxima culpa. <laughs> may I, may I, look at the look at the, look at the pictures. There you have it. Once again, you know um, the uh, it's true. It's true. No, I wanted. It's absolutely right. I wanted to take his argument seriously as an argument. It's true. I mean, 
you know, you can walk into a room with 15 academics and you're going to discuss Plato's Republic. And you're going to have half of them that are going to want to take it, right, as a spoof. And half of them are going to want to take it the other way. But the first thing you got to do, whether you decide to take it as a spoof or not, is you got to have the argument laid out. So if we had more time. I, I, I admit, I wish we had more mirth, but I personally have thoroughly enjoyed your, uh, your comments and your conversations. So thank you very much. I will, uh, if you'll, I, I didn't get to make any comments during this whole series. I, I usually don't, try to keep my mouth shut. But I will say one last thing about what you said. And uh, it's something that I took away from Chesterton the first time I read this book. And, um, and he talks about where the man stands. And he says, the critics of Christianity today stand on debatable ground in every way. And I took away the image of the man who stands at the door of the church, refusing to go in screaming and yelling and heckling the clerics and refusing to go in and see. And he says to that man, you will not ever understand until you get up on the mountain from far away to see the church from the grand perspective. Or you open up the door and you walk in. And another uh, point that I, I stuck in my mind in relationship to that, and I'll conclude with this, is uh, in Tim Gray's book, I think it was on the Gospel of Luke, he talks about the stained glass windows. And when you stand inside the church, how the stained glass windows look versus standing just outside the church. They look brown and dreary, and you can't see the beauty of it. But when you're standing inside the church, you're given a gift that no one else can see. And so I wonder if Chesterton would say, I'm not trying to convince anybody except to get on the proper ground, to get on the proper perspective. And then, on your own, you'll be able to find your way home. So I, I'll leave you with that, because as we stand here on the cusp of Advent, as we look and prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord, we have been given a great gift, and it's the gift of our faith. And it changes everything about what we see, about what we believe, as Dr. Carroll says in at the, the, the first few pages, his introduction to his whole sy series on history, that um, with that gift, everything changes. You write history differently because you're a Christian. So I want to I, I encourage you as you go out the door today that uh, Dr. Carroll has been here with us now for three talks. I would say probably the greatest historian, Catholic historian, of our age. And we are very gifted and blessed to have him here with us. So I want to thank you, Dr. Carroll, for coming.